HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. So, the story behind the Jack Rose. So, the story behind oh. the Jack Rose. Oh, oh so, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, it's it's it's. Totally Were you fine. gonna? No, no. By all means, take it away. Cool. So, the story behind the Jack Rose. A lot of people think it was named after Baldy Jack Rose, a notorious snitch in a saucy murder case that played out in front of the Metropole Hotel. Baldy Jack was allegedly hired to put a hit on infamous gambler Beansy Rosenthal, and when he turned state's evidence, a former police lieutenant went to the chair. But as David Wondrich's Imbibe dutifully documents, the drink is a lot older than this salacious case from 1912. Unfortunately for those of us who love a good drama, Baldy Jack is not our Jack Rose. However, our boy Jack was so despised by the general public that after the trial, a lot of bartenders changed the name of this drink, calling it a royal smile. And speaking of name changes... Nice segue. Thanks. Speaking of name changes, there's been a lot that's been changed and twisted and telephoned throughout the centuries in the stories that get told about the Jack Rose's star ingredient, Brandy. There are some names on the marquee that maybe shouldn't be, while others who labored tirelessly didn't even make it into the credits. So when it comes to history, how do we decide who stays and who goes? Whose stories make the cut? And who gets left behind? I'm Greg Benson. And I'm Jessica Lee Graves. And this is Back Bar. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. And you might have noticed that for the first time here on Back Bar, I'm not alone. No, indeed. Jess, do you want to say a little bit about who you are and what you're doing in everybody's headphones? Do I and how. I am a musician, philosopher, poet, interpreter of American Sign Language, who has somehow managed to end up owning the first distillery in Texas to make absinthe. My partner makes extraordinarily good hooch and falling in love with that spirit had me fall in love with all spirits. Getting into distilling connects me to all of human history and I am a sucker for that kind of romance. And a good cocktail. And a good cocktail story. 
Anyway, our flagship absinthe won an American Distilling Institute award, and that put me behind a tasting table at Tales of the Cocktail back in 2018, where one Greg Benson sidled up and had himself a sip. And we've been friends ever since. Yeah, and these days you and I talk a lot about booze, and at some point last year we started talking about brandy. Right. See, I was interested in the role women had in colonial America and beyond in the production of brandy. Though you do not yourself identify as a woman. Well spotted. So I wanted to invite you to dive into this topic with me. And because, you know, you're smart and funny and you make great absinthe. And I love all sorts of spirits and history and cocktails and somewhere and all of that. We should find a place to start, don't you think? I'm thinking ancient Sumer. All the way back. I'm good with that. Let's go. Sumer, one of the earliest human civilizations, emerged in what we now call Iraq back in prehistory and lasted a couple millennia or so until somewhere late in Bronze Age. What I remember about Sumer from my American public school education is their cuneiform script, but they teach 14-year-olds like none of the juicy stuff. Sumerians didn't just make some of the earliest surviving human language on their clever clay tablets, among several other significant cultural things. They made beer. Beer was so important to Sumerians that they had a goddess of beer, Ninkasi. She was the beer maker and the beer itself, and her sacred song was the recipe for how to make Sumerian ale. She's basically the first brewer, and I like to think of her as my ancient spirit sister. In the arid Mesopotamian climate, they grew wheat and barley, but north of that agricultural area between the Tigris and Euphrates, up between the Black and Caspian Seas, the first apple trees grew. Greg, did you know that apples are actually part of the rose family? Really? Yeah, how do you like them apples? They're certainly coming up roses. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, apples were first cultivated in what we now know as Kazakhstan and spread to every agricultural continent in our modern world, first by traveling the Silk Road westward and then being carried across the Atlantic for a starring role in the American story. Well, apples have always been used for everything. even in um, excavations in the Mediterranean, they found dried apples entombed um, in you know very, very old, thousand-year-old excavations. That's Diane Flint, founder of Foggy Ridge Cider in Virginia. So apples are the perfect um, rural food, or you might call it pioneer food because you can eat it fresh, you can um, dry them, you can preserve them by cooking, you can cook with them, you can store some varieties for a very long time, Um, you can drink the juice fresh, you can ferment it, you can distill it, you can turn it into vinegar. And all of those uses have been used for thousands of years. Brandy is probably the first distilled spirit ever made. Wine was plentiful when Islamic scholars perfected modern distillation techniques in the 9th century. Okay, but that alembic still that the male Arab alchemist in 880 is known for was used by, and credited to by the ancient Greeks, a Jewish woman in Egypt 900 years earlier, an alchemist named Mary the Prophetess. But yeah, fruit has a lot of sugar. And that's what yeast turns into alcohol, so... So it would have been a no-brainer to put the fermented juice from grapes into a still to get something with a little more oomph out of it. Grapes, however, only grow in some climate, but apples are so diverse biologically speaking that they can grow pretty much anywhere, so apple brandy wasn't far behind. 
But now, for our story, we need to skip over the next several hundred years of human history and get to Colonial America, which is one of the best places to go looking for people looking for a drink. So, the colonies are new. They aren't independent from Britain, yet, and on the whole, they're pretty agrarian. New York City doesn't go much further than the southern tip of Manhattan, Florida is still owned by the Spanish, and huge swaths of the country are just... farms. Farms that produce a lot of fruit, sometimes more than people can eat. And, as we all know, one of the best ways to make sure excess fruit doesn't go to waste is mush it up, let it ferment, and turn it into alcohol. And most of that was done by... Women! See, these weren't the big industrial government-regulated operations we think of when we think of people making alcohol today. These were much smaller operations with pre-industrial setups. Most cider was made at home and it was produced not out of luxury, but necessity. Water usually wasn't clean enough to drink and fermentation makes liquids potable. Plus, if you didn't do something with your excess apples or peaches or pawpaws, they were gonna go bad and waste was not something people for most of history could afford. So they'd let them ferment into cider or if they had the know-how and the means, distill them into brandy. It was a function of the household alongside turning butter and tanning hides. In Europe and England, since the Middle Ages and beyond, alcohol was usually produced either by women or by monks. And without a lot of that second group to go around in the American colonies, the work of making the cider and beer that sustained the homestead, again, fell to women. Distilling and brewing were seen as women's work because men were out hunting and foraging and, and farming. And women were in all ancient cultures, seen as the healers or doctors or anything health-related, um, scientists, uh, chemists, they would be involved in all that. So really our knowledge or our sort of understanding um, of men in these days sort of running the, the spirits industry is sort of a new, it kind of only goes back about 100 years ago when the major commercial labels started coming out. That's Jennifer Quirby's, founder of Brandy St. Louise and all-around smarty pants when it comes to making booze from fruit. We talked to her about the long, long history of women as homemakers, as caretakers, even as alchemists, and more on that later. But the fact is, throughout most of human history, making alcohol was seen as something that you did for your health, for your family's safety, and by women. That's true. And for a time that runs pretty close to what we'd consider modern history, brewing, distilling, cider making, what have you, they weren't done by companies in massive industrial-grade facilities or even in tiny, trendy, microbrew-sized ones. It was done in people's homes. Which kind of bumps up on our modern conception of where alcohol comes from, right? Like, I don't know about you, but for a while there, I thought about the art of making booze as some complex alchemy that us mortals could never master. And sometimes I still do. Really? Yeah, just ask anybody who's tried to homebrew with me. <laughs> well, the thing that's different about fruit is that unlike wheat or rice or the barley, you know, the grains that were giving you so much trouble in your homebrewing, is that those things all contain complex sugars and there's a lot of enzymatic rigmarole that has to happen before yeast can ferment them. But with fruit, those sugars are simple. Chemists actually call them simple sugars. You can ferment your leftover harvests without a lot of complicated maneuvers. Which isn't to say that making tasty beverages out of fruit isn't hard. Truly, it is. In fact, for a long time, it was common practice in America for daughters to be gifted their mother's secret family cider recipes as a wedding present. But the chemical processes are straightforward enough that without a lot of complex equipment, you can make it in your barn, your backyard, or even the local churchyard. Because remember, for a long time, almost nobody thought about brewing and distilling as a money-making operation. It was an economic necessity. And it was only recently, in the grand scheme of things, that changed. 
Of course, there wasn't a specific day, but since we're talking about America and apples and booze, we can point to 1698 when a man and his two sons set sail from Scotland for the exotic land of New Jersey. So I'm curious, from about the third century until uh, I think well after this trio arrived from Scotland, um, making cider and brandy was considered women's work. So was it just that it, it was the three dudes that came across that it became uh, you know, a, man, a man's business or, or uh, you know, ha- like what, what, what made them deign to do the, the, the women's work? <laughs> well, we're assuming that they were distillers when they were in Scotland. Uh, so when they fled here to the new world, they found apples that were very abundant. Uh, the women, I'm sure, were somewhat involved, but as we know, there really were not, back in those days, there were no records. You know, we don't have the records of any of the female coming over. You know, the women, I'm sure their wives came along with them, uh, but, uh, and, and any children they may have had in Scotland, but um, uh, it's, the records for many, many years are just uh, reference the male, you know, the male members of the family. Lisa Laird Dunn is a ninth, let me say that again, ninth generation distiller for Laird's Apple Brandy, which is the longest running family distillery in America. In other words, yep, the oldest continually owned and operated distillery in the country doesn't make its juice from corn or rye or barley, but good old fashioned apples. It interests me that a bunch of Scottish people would come across the Atlantic. And when I think of Scotland, I think of rain, uh, wool, and Scotch whiskey. And so it, it's it's interesting that they would get here and start making brandy from apples. Yeah, it, it definitely is an interesting concept, but uh, I guess when they arrived here, apples were flourishing here in New Jersey, especially here in Monmouth County, uh, where where they settled. Uh, and they, you know, they found a way to make whiskey spirit out of it. You know, they found apples. Well, then, well, we'll start distilling the apples. For all the ink that bourbon and rye get today, for a long, long, long time, America was brandy country. And it was that way for two reasons. Cider, which Applejack is distilled from, was easy. And it was everywhere. The only natural apple to our country is the crab apple. Well, you know, the other (laughs) apples were all imported from England. Um, So... You know, there was no other use. They didn't eat them. So to preserve those apples, they would produce cider. You know, far, even farmers themselves, they would produce their own. And a lot of farmers would do the jacking, the, the freeze distillation versus if they didn't have a still. Um, but if they had apple trees, they were making apple cider, hard cider, and then the, the apple jack and apple brandy. And it was in Everybody would bring their own if it, um, supply. If there was a wedding, there was a, a church social, there was a funeral, it was always consumed. And the prevalence of brandy was especially high when it came to cocktails. For ages in this country, if you rolled up to a bar, meaning you, Greg, not me, because I couldn't do that until less than 100 years ago, but if you rolled up to the bar and ordered a cocktail, the default assumption was you wanted it with brandy. In fact, most of the truly classic cocktails we think of today as whiskey-based, like the Old Fashioned, the Sazerac, even the Mint Julep, were originally made with the fruit of the vine or the old apple tree, which brings us back to the Jack Rose. It arrived a little later on the scene, closer to prohibition in 1920 than the invention of the cocktail in 1806. It first got ink in 1899 with its invention credited to a bar called Eberlin's and a bartender named Frank Haas. Then in 1905, we get this little shout out in the Police Gazette. 
I said, we get this little shout out in the police gazette. Oh, oh, you want me to? Yeah, sure. Why not? Well, it's just that we usually get the hell. Here goes. Frank J. May, better known as Jack Rose, is the inventor of a very popular cocktail by that name, which has made him famous as a mixologist. Very nice. Thank you. Let me get this straight, though. Neither of these origin stories involve a hit gone wrong in front of a famous New York hotel. Nope. Neither of them have any gambling debts, no disgraced police lieutenants, no conspiracy to commit murder. None of that? Nope. Just bartenders making drinks. I mean, I'm not disappointed. I like bartenders a lot more than I like police, murderers, or gambling, and I like the truth in a good cocktail more than I like some BS gangster story. Right? And there's a ton of real stories about the men making the stuff that goes into these drinks, your whiskeys, your ciders, your brandies. But all that used to be the purview of women. So where are they? Well, they're long dead, Greg. Okay, yeah, but they made and drank most of the drinks that sustained humanity for thousands of years. Like, I get that by the time there were bars in America, women weren't allowed to drink there. But surely those weren't the only places people were drinking. What about people's houses? What about when they had the neighbors over? We know that these recipes were written down and passed from mothers to their daughters, so why do all the recipe books that we talk about, your Bon Vivants, your Savoy cocktail books, why were they all written by... Dudes? Yeah. Are there just no books written by women? (laughs) Uh, yeah. What I discovered with the story around the cocktail is it's actually not that the publications don't exist. They just haven't been looked at through this lens before. People haven't looked at housekeeping manuals or etiquette guides um, or cookery books as a historical source for the cocktail. That's Nicola Nice. Dr. Nicola Nice, in fact, founder of Pomp and Whimsy Gin Liqueur and the Women's Cocktail Collective a project she's recently launched to give women the credit they deserve in a long line of male mixologists. It always kind of starts out of just a researcher's curiosity, right? So a feeling that the story is not giving us the full picture. Um, As I, you know, I would start with a Google search, just like we all do now, the library of Google and and Google women history cocktail um, and nothing would ever come up. And yet, if you sort of Google history of the cocktail, or you can find 50,000 lists of the 10 most influential cocktail books of all time, and it's the same people on the same list, and it's overwhelmingly male. Nicola's campaign to write women back into the history of the cocktail stands on a simple hypothesis. Women have long been tethered to the household, and out of all the drinks drank throughout human history, scant few were consumed outside the home. Bars and taverns are a recent development in civilization, and they were run by women until the last couple hundred years or so. Ipso facto, the vast majority of drinking humanity has done was at home, and thus overseen and directed, and yes, even written about by women. The problem isn't that the texts don't exist, Greg. It's that no one's looked at them and gone, ah, this is a cocktail book. As a researcher by trade, what I wanted to do was really understand, well, what is the role that women have played in the history of the cocktail? I was reading the conventional story as such as it has um, evolved, and I felt like possibly only half of the story was being told, uh, mostly just because I couldn't really identify where women would have had an impact. And like so many histories and the way history is told, um, we know that usually 
women's contribution is not as well documented. Um, and so I wanted to start documenting it. So it's not like these books were lost in some great tragic library fire or anything. We had them. We just didn't really care. What do you mean we? I guess I mean people like me, dudes writing about other dudes. God, that sucks. It gets worse when you think about how society looks at you when you knock a few back versus how it looks at me when I do the same thing. You have to layer on the the social and cultural associations of women and drinking, right, as well, which then adds another layer of complexity about cultural attitudes towards women and drinking and women and intoxication and the the difference between how uh, you know men are viewed with a drink in their hand and women are viewed with a drink in their hand and you know once you start to put all of these things together um it's 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 not hard to see how uh, women become excluded yeah it makes sense like you see that in movies all the time see when my character gets drunk he's just having a good time or blowing off some steam or else it's this noble manly communion with existential sadness at the bottom of a rocks glass but when your character gets drunk she's just a reckless and shitty daughter slash sister slash mom right and compound that with the fact that women were basically the property of their fathers until they got married and passed off to be the property of their husbands it's no wonder we've never heard of any classic female authored cocktail books. Plus, there are so many works of music and art and science that women had to publish under their husbands' names, and no one's ever gotten called a hussy for writing a libretto. It's no wonder so much drinking history got lost. Yeah. Okay, so it makes sense why women were written out of cocktail history. I mean, it sucks, and I hate it, but at least I get why it happened. But how come, like you were saying, historically making this alcohol, specifically brandy and cider, that was done by women for most of American history up to the 19th century, right? And yet now, when we think of leading distillers and brewers and the sort of luminaries in this field again, it's all dudes. Like women had all this knowledge. Why aren't they the ones making the cider and the brandy and the whiskey and all of it on a big industrial scale? And unfortunately, that's another crappy story. It starts in Europe in the 1500s. And I'll let my spirit sister, Jen, take it from there. And that's really when it turned right there is um, from women producing before to when they were, were be being able to monetize it. And then the guilds in um, and all of Europe um, were didn't allow women to be members. So they got their husbands or their or their brothers or kids to register for them. So a number of European countries, as soon as technology advanced to a point where you could produce spirits on a large scale said, wait, this is important stuff. We can't trust the running of a sophisticated operation like this to just anybody. Not if there's real money to be made. We need rules and regulations and guilds to make sure that only the best people can make alcohol. And, you know, their buddies can get on it, too. Wait, so even though women had been making this stuff for literally thousands of years, as soon as there was money in it, men swooped in and were just like, hey, this is ours now. Oh, well, we can't be trusting the running of a factory to those pesky women folk. They're not even really people. Did, don't even get me started on people of color. That, like, just doesn't make good business sense. Like, why take production out of the hands of people who know how to do it best? Well, making alcohol for the home is one thing, and making it for profit is another. 
Well, we've never placed um, any monetary value on domestic work, right? That's part of the issue. And that's part of the issue that we have with um, the lack of parental leave and the, the, the lack of... Um, you know, f- flexible time for for women, and is the you know is a fundamental reason why women drop out of the workplace, and so it's very it's very deeply rooted that issue. So it seems like, and this isn't even the only field that this is true for. By the way, you see it in fashion, you see it in restaurants, you see it in nursing, you can even see it in midwifing, for God's sake. But when women do something, it's dirty work, it's a chore, it's unglamorous labor. But as soon as men take it over, it becomes, what, classy, sophisticated, cool? You know, I was having a conversation about this with Scott and Becky Harris, who run Catoctin Creek Distilling many, many years ago. And Becky brought up this exact point, like, come on, artisanal laundry. Like, let's make this cool so I can move it off of my to-do list. And I guess it's just a question of whose labor do we see and whose have we always seen as just inherently more valuable? Yep. Just let me, I want to ask you this, since you own and run a distillery, how do you feel about all this? Well, I can tell you, my business card says owner. I do the tours. I go out there and get the accounts. And no matter how clearly I tell the story of our company to people inside and outside the industry, I'm constantly getting demoted. I have had to sometimes multiple times correct people. I don't work for or with my partners. I own the thing. It doesn't exist without me. The other two, my male partners who own the same 33% I do, never get introduced as someone who works for the brand. And it's not like this wasn't a job women weren't managing perfectly fine for most of recorded human history. Exactly. And for a while there, before we knew about microorganisms, when fermentation just looked like magic, it wasn't just a humdrum job for women. It was revered as in the sacred song of the Sumerian goddess Ninkasi. It was seen as communing with and channeling the power of the gods to make this stuff, which worked out great for women for a while until things like the Spanish Inquisition started happening and all of a sudden having a mystic connection with the beyond to be a healer went from being a really good thing to being a really bad thing. And meanwhile, men were scaling up the exact same witchcraft to industrial quantities. It's been done in pretty much every kind of alcoholic beverage. I could give you a great example in the origins of absinthe and one for pretty much every other type of booze, too. Wow. So if I made beer in the 16th century, I'd be lauded as a savvy business person and get to run my own factory and maybe be admitted into a trade guild. And if you did it, you'd be tied to a big piece of wood and lit on fire. Pretty much, yeah. God, that's depressing. How the other half lives, my friend. (sighs) Should we take a break? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you want to take us out? Sure. When we come back, prohibition gets enacted, then repealed, drinks meet democracy, and the Jack Rose, again, suffers a severe change of subject. That's coming up after this. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe, from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. 
we'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump back in on December 5th, 1933, repeal day. The nation's disastrous 13-year experiment with forced sobriety, <laughs> sobriety finally comes to an end and folks are thrilled. Anyone who wants one grabs a drink to celebrate. And for the first time, anyone actually means anyone. Those great old Gilded Age bars of yesteryear that we love revering, they were boys clubs, literally. But speakeasy owners in the 1920s had neither the ability nor the inclination to gatekeep. So when Prohibition was rolled back under the Roosevelt administration, women had absolutely no interest in going back to the way things were. Hey Jess, you want to take this one? Oh, I sure do. So... This fun little nugget is from Don Marquis, the humorist who created Archie and Mahidabel, the famous philosophizing cat and roach duo. Women come into this new bar room. They go right up to the bar. They put a foot up on the brass railing. They order. They are served. They bend the elbow. They hoist. They toss down the feminine esophagus, the brew that was really meant for men. Stout and wicked men. The last barrier is down. The citadel has been stormed and taken. There is no longer any escape, no hiding place where the hounded male may seek his fellow and strut his stuff safe from the atmosphere and presence of femininity. A man might as well do his drinking at home with his wife and daughters, and there was never any fun in that. Wow. Guy didn't really marry very well, did he? <laughs> well, yeah, and like, if you never have a good time around anybody, there's one common thread there, pal. Oh, um, male tears. But, you know, I drink them. <laughs> it's funny, though. You'd think that since making this stuff was the job of women for so long, and because so many women were happy to stay in bars once they moved above ground, that they would have advocated against the 18th Amendment banning alcohol just over a decade earlier. But... There was this sort of belief that um, this sort of Victorian ideal um, in gendered I identities and gendered roles, um, and so created this sort of social distinction and behavioral distinction between what men were doing and what women were doing. That's Nicola Nice again. And so at this time where the, the cocktail was sort of became a staple of private men's clubs, women were the ones who were um, entertaining in the home, but they were also the ones who were dealing with <laughs> the fact that their husbands were going and squandering everything they earned on alcohol and gambling and you know, maybe prostitution, and then they were coming home and bearing, bearing the brunt of the abusive behaviors um, that were coming back into the house, and they felt they had no control over this. And so that is really how, and obviously I am glossing majorly over the top of this, but that's really how the temperance movement and the suffrage movement really first came together, because they recognized that the only way they were going to be able to um, change the behavior of men was at a political level. In other words, women had gone from making this stuff to having no control over the effect it had on their lives. And there was very little they could do to change that. 
It's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's essentially how the suffrage movement aligned with the temperance movement. And I think that people often think erroneously that, um, you know, people who were pro-temperance were were pro-suffrage and people who were pro-suffrage were pro-the temperance movement. No, it was a convenience <laughs> um, of the two movements coming together. It was one of those cases of you know, being able to, to do more by combining the arguments together. And there were plenty of women who were pro-suffrage, but who were drinkers, <laughs> um, just as there were um, many women who were pro-the temperance movement, but did not believe in women having the vote. Um, it's no coincidence that these two amendments, one which banned the manufacture, transport and sale of alcohol for consumption, and the other being the right for most, not all women, to vote, coming into um, enactment in the same year. But the cool thing is that by the time drinking came back with the enactment of the 21st Amendment, the cocktail scene had been democratized. Not only were women making cocktails at home where they could get away with it, but they were going out and drinking at speakeasies right along with the boys. So by the time Prohibition was repealed, women could hit the ballot box and then grab a drink afterwards down at the local bar. They had their cake, and they were drinking it too. Oh yeah, sure, we got the vote, and then we could legally drink, and it solved all of women's problems. I'm sure they did. But now, we've also got to look at what women were drinking, and for that matter, what everyone was drinking, because that didn't include a lot of cocktails or a lot of brandy. Like, if we had continued to just produce straight Applejack, I wouldn't be here today. So little brandy, in fact, that Lisa's family business had to make a hard swerve just to stay alive. Back in, as we were moving into the 1960s, into the 70s, people were not drinking brown spirits. You know, people were lightening their spirits. Rye became blended whiskey. Uh, the scotches were blended. Everything was being lightened with neutral grain spirits. As our product was a straight apple brandy, as our, our federal standard of identity, we are not allowed to add any other product to it to lighten it. It has to be 100% apples. Uh, so my, uh, it was my uncle, um, Jack Laird, John Evans Laird Jr., to be exact. Um, he petitioned the federal government to create a new federal standard of identity for blended apple jacks so we could lighten our product with neutral grain. And that would have very little reach for, I mean, how many other companies in the, what, 70s were doing apple brandy in the United States? No, no we were the <laughs> only company left producing apple brandy. And we have diversified with other divisions of our company and an import division. We produce other spirits. And if we did not make those changes and adjust to what the consumers were looking for, our company would not be here today. Wow. So apple brandy went from being like this ubiquitous thing that was made in so many towns and homes and backyards all over this country to being almost non-existent in just a few decades. Yeah. And the thing is, there were so many different types of apples in this country that were cultivated just so they could make that cider or that brandy, just a little bit drier or a little bit sweeter. And all of that went away in large part thanks to the temperance movement and what came after like, you know, Johnny Appleseed, right? I mean, I am a product of the American public school system, yes. Right? So he was a real guy named John Chapman. And the trees he planted, they weren't for eating. So many more apples in this country wound up in cider barrels than on kitchen tables. 
until the temperance movement took it upon themselves to ruin the apple's reputation so that people would stop making them into booze. Wow. Oh, okay, so now I've got one for you. So you know the phrase, an apple a day? Keeps the doctor away. Exactly. Well, that was actually made up by apple growers because they were so worried that temperance was going to destroy their business, they actually had to sell people on the idea of eating apples. Like, that just wasn't a thing that people were used to doing. There was so much biodiversity in this country when it came to this one humble, delicious little fruit, and that all just kind of vanished. You know, once you came up to uh, the temperance movement, you know, basically that was what destroyed the Applejack industry because people were chopping down apple. They were just cutting them down because there was no other use for the apple than to produce those demon spirits. Uh, and um, they were just chopped down. And there was, uh, I, I'm trying to remember where I, where I came across this, but it, it kind of cracks me up. But you always knew if there was an old timer that was very dedicated Applejack drinker because he still had old apple trees on his property and refused to cut them down. Diane Flint is literally writing the book on this subject, which she knows from running her heirloom apple orchard in Virginia. We had thousands, literally, of apple varieties that existed in the South that had all these many uses. And then in, you know, we had those for hundreds of years. And then in less than 50 years, we lost many of those varieties, if not most. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The path of the moral high ground is littered with... Bodies? Well, I was going to say apple cores, but yeah, that too, I guess. (laughs) I mean, so I'm a pretender. You're the bartender, so you tell me. With apple brandy, like, on the brink of extinction, what's happening with the Jack Rose through all this? How's that drink doing as all the apple orchards are getting cleared and America passes into the cocktail dark age? Well, surprisingly, kind of fine. Like, no cocktail really had a smooth go of it during the 70s and 80s, but the Jack Rose does show up in Jones' Bar Guide, which is really one of the only good books written during that time, and its recipe seems more or less intact. Ooh, and the recipe for the we did, did we not? Did we? Oh man, did we not do that already? Man, if we had, I'd have made one by now. Well, it first appeared in Jack's manual in 1910, when the recipe called for, and this is a quote here, cider brandy as well as lemon juice, lime juice, orange juice, and raspberry syrup. Duh, that's, I mean, I don't want to call that juicy, even if that is technically correct. Yeah, but in Jack Straub's drinks from 1914, it's two ounces of Applejack, the juice of half a lime, and half an ounce of grenadine. Mm. And that's basically the same recipe as it appears 63 years later in Stan Jones's book. And frankly, that's the way I like mine. Except maybe a little on the drier side, because that's just my preference. Although sometimes, yeah, if I'm feeling really nasty... Ooh, I like it nasty. I like to throw a pinch of balsamic vinegar in there, too. Ooh! Oh, I bet you that... Oh, man! With mm. Yeah! It's like, it the, the tanginess melds really well. It just kind of bonds with the apple flavors. It's just uh, kind of pumps up the, the pomegranate and the grenadine. It's delicious. So, speaking of changing the recipe... There's this podcast that I love. It's called Away With Words. And they answer people's questions about idioms and etymologies and whatnot. And recently this woman called in and she asked if any of the hosts had ever heard of this phenomenon where, so 
the you know family's having a conversation and then someone starts just very abruptly on a completely different subject and somebody else says jack roses oh so like it's sort of to call them out on changing the subject yeah and the hosts were stumped they could not figure it out did it have anything to do with the cocktail well they did mention that um but remember how earlier we said the cocktail definitely wasn't named after that unlikable hitman yeah, but bartenders had to go ahead and change the name anyway. Right. So what if that had something to do with it? Oh, dang. Okay, so like people hate Jack Rose now, so we got to call this drink, uh, I don't know, the Royal Smile. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's cool. Kind of makes you think, doesn't it? About the old switcheroo. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of what we've been talking about this whole episode, isn't it? Just like abruptly changing things without any apology. Like, oops, we know you've been growing these apples for hundreds of years, but fermenting them is illegal now, so you better find something else to do with them. Maybe eat them. What, they're too sour? I don't know, not my problem. Or like, oh no, sorry ladies, we know you've been making these beverages for thousands of years, but you better leave it to the dudes this time because we've got a license now, and when we do it, it's cool, and when you do it, it sucks, or it's drudgery, or maybe witchcraft, we haven't really decided yet. And like, oh, sure, you wrote all these books with cocktails in them, but that's more of a housekeeping guide because you weren't a man when you wrote it. So we'll just pretend that never happened and let the boys take it from here. Thank you very much. Go right ahead. Not like I have a choice in the matter anyway. Yeah. Are you mad? Like, I'm mad and, and I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed with myself that I didn't know that this was going on. That I know so much about the guys that wrote all these famous cocktail books and so little about the women who contributed so much and never get any credit from me or from anybody else, really. Well, you don't know, you don't know. Could fill a library or two, right? <sighs> Tell me about it. Nice thing about the world of spirits and cocktails, though, is that uncovering that history can be downright delicious and fun. Just ask Nicola. I think that... At any point in history um, or any point in time, taking the time to understand the full picture um, would have enriched. <laughs> I don't know how much it would have changed, but I, I like to think it would have enriched the cocktail as we are now fortunately get to experience it today um, with that understanding. And I think that, um, you know, what, what what's interesting about reading a bartending guide versus reading a housekeeping guide is that the housekeeping guide is all about showing people how to make something from nothing and to, 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 to streamline and have efficiencies in the way that they operate their home and so on. And it's less about the kind of technical ways of this is the correct way to make this drink, right? It must be these ingredients. So when you look at cocktails that you'll find written up in bartending guides, and then you find them again in these these home books. You you find a lot of like wild variants in the recipes, and I think that that is because the way that women write for that audience is less about you know what's the technical way to to mix a martini versus a ricky versus something else, and instead think about well what's the availability of ingredients, what's the season, what's the occasion. You know, who are you mixing for? How else might you be able to use these ingredients around the home? And so it's just a different way of thinking about it. And I think that the mixology movement over the last 15 years has kind of got to a place that where I observe as an observer of consumers and of people, where a lot of people now feel that 
they don't have the knowledge, expertise or ability to mix a good drink anymore. They're intimidated by it. Um, and I have people say to me, I'm, I'm not a mixologist. <laughs> um, and I think the difference with if we had taken into account more this kind of this, this homemaking version of it, perhaps we wouldn't have got quite so, uh, I don't know what the right word is, <laughs> quite so um, pretentious with it. Um, and we would have, it would have made it a lot easier for people at home to really, um, to really get into it at home as well. Egocentric was the word that was in my head, but pretentious, <laughs> but, it, but it does seem that way though, right? It seems that, you know, what you're saying is the focus for all of the, the books that you are venerating to their rightful place is on the guest. Whereas if you look at some of the early books that came out about sort of, you know, the, the cocktail renaissance, it's about the bartender is the main character, the person making it, not the person drinking it. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's the fundamental difference between hosting and hospitality, right? So when you're hosting, you're, you're, you're in the home and you're, you're, you're focused on who the people are, who are with you and what the occasion is and making them feel at home. Whereas I think when we go out to have a hospitality experience, we want the theatre of being catered to. We want, you know, we want that experience of eating a meal or drinking a cocktail that blows our mind, right? But when we go home, we're not trying to recreate that, <laughs> right? I, I didn't learn to cook from watching Top Chefs. I learned to cook from watching my mother, <laughs> right? And so, you know, the fact that I can make a great roast chicken is not because I saw um, you know, some iron chef make one and same with cocktails, right? Same with, um, the way I serve at home. I'm not trying to be a bartender. I'm trying to be a good host. And I think if we, if we appreciate those values equally, then like I say, we'll just enrich that experience overall and, and not intimidate people by it. Do you feel like we're on that path? Like, to get people to the point where they can make these things in their home, by themselves, just entertaining, men and women, and we can make them feel empowered rather than intimidated by it? Well, I certainly hope to entertain people in my home again someday, but with or without this pandemonium, I think that getting to a place where people can relax and enjoy, say, a Jack Rose among friends is about making it accessible to everyone, which is about making spirits and cocktails available to anyone and not about what women do or men do. I mean, who doesn't love a good drink? Exactly. Like, I would love to get to a point where we don't have to highlight, oh man, look at this thing this woman did. Isn't that so awesome? Because women being in this space is so commonplace that nobody bats an eye anymore. I don't want to have to go, oh, a man did this or a woman did this. I want to just be able to say a person did this and that's worth drinking to. Even if that utopian ideal of egalitarian home bartending isn't quite here yet, Brandy is definitely back. And Apple Brandy came back in a big way in the mid-aughts when Lisa Laird Dunn got a call from a certain bartender running a new spot in Manhattan called Pegu Club. I really wanted to ask what your reaction was like when Audrey Saunders came up to you. And I think it was 2005 is when I heard this story. And she was like, hey, I'm opening a, a bar. It's called Pegu Club. And I want to put a lot of your bottled and bond on the back bar. Like what, what was... 
were you skeptical? Were you, you know, dancing around in your office and then went back to the phone and were like, um, yes, I believe we can fill that order. You know, what would just yeah. describe that moment for me? Yeah, it's just like, hold on while I scream loudly, you know? <laughs> it almost like fell out of my chair. I'm like, Audrey Saunders, oh my God. You know, it was, it was very, very cool. And that was the beginning of something wonderful for us and, and really creating an awareness about the brand. But yeah, no, total shock, uh, total excitement. Um, you know, at that point in time, you know, she's like, you are across the river from us. And I can't get your bottle and bond. And I was like, I would do anything that I can do to get that product to you. But, you know, unfortunately, our distributor wouldn't, would only carry the blended Applejack. They would not take any of our other expressions. And because of Audrey, and she, you know, gathered up other uh, bartenders uh, uh, in New York City, and they started asking for the product. And every order that we shipped in, she would order the entire lot. And they would share it <laughs> because, you know, that way they had their little allocation and it grew from there. And, you know, as we know, the bartending community is a global community and word would spread. You know, everybody starts, you know, talking about their cocktails and and they're like, what is this product? Um, you know, they weren't aware of it. And, you know, when you're looking for classic pre post prohibition Applejack cocktails, um, you know, they wanted our bottle and bond. They wanted the product that those cocktails were actually being created with. And today, Laird's is still here. And you can still ask for their bottled and bond in a Jack Rose at French 75 in New Orleans or Clover Club in Brooklyn or Jack Rose in D.C., even though that's a whiskey bar for some reason. And in New Jersey, brandy is still being made in much the same way it was by Alexander Laird 300 years ago by Lisa and her family. My son is here. Yes, he started about two years ago. Um, he picked a very difficult time uh, in history <laughs> to join the family <laughs> business. So he's really uh, learn, learning uh, quite a bit uh, to how to deal with obstacles uh, uh, and so forth. But yeah, he's on board and it, it's wonderful to have him here. We actually have three generations currently working together, which is very unique Uh because I, I, I can't think of any other company that has three continuous generations working together, uh, which can really cause some very interesting dynamics between, uh, you know, 81-year-old to the 25-year-old. So, I, I was, I was going to say, any other company, I can't think of any other family that would want to do that. Like, what is, <laughs> what, is, what is that like? Well, the Lairds sound like they're doing okay, but what about the women that Nicola is working to restore to their proper place in history? The women that were also writing cocktail recipes at the same time as Jerry Thomas and Jock Straub, these people that have just been Jack Roses out of the narrative. <laughs> I love that you verbed that. Let's get it started. But those women, their stories aren't entirely lost and they're getting out there more and more. We know who they are, some of them anyway. We have some of their names. What's been interesting for me is I've kind of been doing this parallel, if you like, study is to kind of sort of think about, well, who would have been the equivalent woman at this time? Um, and, you know, how how influential would she have been and what was she writing about? And so, you know, if we're going to read about Jerry Thomas, you know, who should we be reading about as an equivalent, right, um, of a woman in the home? Um, so there are definitely some women that stand out to me. Um, the first would be Eliza Leslie. Um, so Eliza Leslie was really the first um, 
American um, cookery writer to have international success writing in the style of um, cookery um, authorship that had sort of become popular in the UK, but she was writing primarily for an American audience, right? So up until that point, um, we had had Mary Randolph, who is considered um, the first sort of true American cookbook writer. Um, But Eliza Leslie was really the first person to kind of take that to another level um, and become an all-round highly successful writer. So she just didn't, she didn't just write cooking manuals and etiquette guides. She wrote novels and short stories and, you know, was a a really prolific and influential writer. Um, And some of my favorite recipes come from her books. So I think that she's someone who it's definitely worth spending more time digging into um, and understanding who she was. And she really wrote prolifically about the use of alcohol in the home. And when I'm kind of doing recipe research or flavor research, I find myself going back a lot to her book, um, specifically Modern Cookery in All Its Branches, um, which she published in 1845, uh, which was a few, quite a few years before Jerry Thomas published his book, right? So um, it's, I think it's important for us all to know who she is because she has influenced so many people, so many writers that came after her, um, especially in the domestic field. Um, she was probably the, I mean, you mentioned Isabella Beaton. So Isabella Beaton was a British writer, but internationally successful and one of the, the the pieces that I've read about her was that at the time, I mean, she died very young. I think she died when she was 28, but her husband continued to publish her work posthumously. Um, but her book of household management at one time was so successful, the only book um, that outsold it was the Bible. Um, so that just kind of gives you a level of how influential these writers were, right? I mean, if the Bible was in everybody's home, I mean, this was in one in two homes. <laughs> you know, for some reason, I'm thinking about that ancient Sumerian song. The hymn of Ninkasi? Yeah, because history kind of is this mercurial, impartial arbiter, right? Of whose songs get sung and whose get buried, who gets to step up to the silver microphone and who doesn't, like whose recipes get recorded into the pages of the cocktail books and who's considered unimportant or uninteresting or uncool. Uh, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Well, I didn't want to go full Hamilton on it, but yeah, basically, because that was how people got remembered for so long. You know, songs, plays, epic poems. Who do we write songs about and who do we not? You're a musician, right, Jess? I am. And I know you're talented, but maybe not so well-versed in ancient Sumerian? Not so much. Okay, so let's put aside the hymn of Ninkasi then, because I've got something that might even be better. So, Mistress Margaret Dodd wrote a book in 1826 called The Cook and Housewife's Manual. And in that book, she's a recipe for Brandy Odevee that's actually written as a song. Do you think you could sing us a few bars of that to close us out? That sounds like just the thing to sing. The genuine receipt to make low de la vie. It takes seven large lemons and 
as a wafer or what is much thinner your skin six ounces of sugar next take and bear in mind that the sugar be of the best double refined clear the sugar in near half a pint of spring water in the neat silver saucepan you bought for your daughter then the fourth of a pint you must fully allow of new milk made as warm as it comes from the cow put the rinds of the lemons the milk and the syrup in a jar with the rum and give them a stir up a full quart of old rum french brandy is better but we never been received should stick close to the letter then let it stand thus ten days but remember to shake it and the closer you stop it the richer you make it then filter through paper till sparkle and rise be as soft as your lips and as bright as your eyes last bottle it up and believe me the vicar has never himself drank better liquor in a word it excels by a million of odds the nectar your sister presents to the gods this episode of back bar was written and directed by me greg benson and co-hosted and co-researched by the phenomenal jessica lee graves Matt Patterson and Brandon Feudernick provided engineering support and research assistance came from Zoe Denkla. Our artwork is by Alicia Chan and our music is by Ryan Laney. Thank you to our amazing guests on this show today. Dr. Nicola Nice, Diane Flint, Jen Quirbys, and Lisa Laird Dunn. Thanks as well to the amazing Shannon Mustafer for her wisdom and insight into the wide world of brandy. Thank you so much for listening to HRN food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg, that's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place, and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, uh, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Tune in next time as interests get more niche, Brews get hoppier, and a bizarre business strategy emerges alongside grunge and bucket hats. That's when we return for more of history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. <laughs>